What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, we get to talk about video games today. My favorite topic. Yeah. So excited. Yeah, we've done this episode before, but we didn't, or this question before, but you didn't get to answer it because you weren't in there. Yeah, that was really rude that you guys had a, a guest <laughs> on instead of me. <laughs> and he, yeah, we did the, uh, well, something Zelda related and you weren't there. Yeah, I know. I couldn't do, a Zel- I didn't do a Zelda one this time, so uh, I'm very <laughs> upset. But the question we're answering um, is, what if video game items were real? Um, and so we have basically each selected a item from a game and saying, hey, what would we do with this if we had this in real life? What, what would be the fun applications you could use this for? And I'm going to go ahead and get us started because the one I picked is, I think actually, it's actually one of my, you know, I, I picked it because it's one of my favorite items in games in general, just because of all the ways they use it so cleverly. And that is the portal gun from the game Portal. It's one of my games in general, my favorite games in general. Oh, Very so good. good. So what is the portal gun, if you don't know? Um, portal gun, also known as the Aperture Science Handheld Portal Device, is basically a handheld gun device that can shoot a blue portal and an orange portal onto appropriate surfaces. And then once you have the two portals shot on two different places, you can jump through one portal and out the other. So if you put one on like a left wall and one on the right wall, and you go and run into the left wall, you'll come out the other side of the room. So there's a lot of like pretty obvious things that you can do that are fun and good with this. Like you can, you know, shoot one on the ceiling and one on the floor, make something fall infinitely, create infinite speed, energy, set up some transport hubs across the world, make up some crazy sports, etc. But I really wanted to solve like a specific real world problem. I'm going to put a spoilers warning here for Portal 2. The game came out April 18th, 2011, which is almost 10 years ago. This Actually, this episode might come out like basically right on it, huh? Yeah, basically right on this on the ten year anniversary, probably like slightly before. We did that on purpose. <laughs> yeah. No, but it was a fun little tidbit. So, spoiler warning here: if you don't want to hear about Portal Two, skip like I don't know, fifteen twenty minutes ahead, and, and then you don't have to worry about me and talking then about it. Go play Portal Two, and then come back. Yeah, also just play Portal Two. So, now we're in spoiler territory. At the end of Portal Two, the very last boss, the very last thing that happens, the most awesome moment in the game is that they hint throughout the game that. The portals only work on certain surfaces, and they 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 mention a few times very subtly that that surface is moon dust. So in the last battle, the way you defeat the final boss is you actually shoot a portal through the broken ceiling all the way to the moon, and then the vacuum of space is what you know helps you defeat the final boss there. So I want to use the moon because that is just fracking cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm going to explore is could you take all the trash in the world that is stuck in landfills and creating methane and causing all sorts of problem. And can you put all the trash on the moon instead? Just make a portal, put all the trash in the portal, and call it a day. I'm sure that won't cause future problems. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be fine. So the first question is, and Chris, mostly because you're bugging me about this one, is can you hit the moon <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the portal gun? So in the game, you shoot the, your, your portal at the moon, and it takes about two and a half, three seconds to hit and your portal appears. Interestingly, there's actually a little bit of science behind it where the amount of time it takes is actually exactly what it would be if the portal shot was traveling at light speed to hit the moon and back. And that two and a half, three second window jives with actually the the Apollo experiments that they were doing on the first moon landing where they set up reflecting dishes on the moon and you can shoot a laser at it and it'll take that two and a half, three second windows for the light to reflect all the way back. So really it only takes... 1.25 seconds to hit the moon with light, and then at, you know, 1.25 seconds to see the light coming back. And apparently, if you are patient enough, you can still shoot lasers at the moon and get a reflection. Do you think that was on purpose in the game? Uh, Yeah, it's actually in the developer commentary. Um, It wasn't originally. They actually had it a little bit longer and more dramatic, but they found what playtesters would do is they would do the correct thing and shoot the portal at the moon and then not see anything happen right away and look away. (laughs) 
<laughs> so they'd be like trying to f- figure out some other new thing to do and suddenly like it would transport them to a cutscene of like them being on the moon. So quite cool. The speed of so the 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 portals actually travel at the speed of light. But this is just in, in Portal 2. I'll take a moment to just note that Reddit user too close to crazy notes that the Portal 1 shots are slower when shooting them inside the game. You can actually physically see them kind of cross the room. Based on that shot speed, if you shot a Portal 1 gun at the moon, it would take 80 days to reach the moon with that shot, which would be technically doable because we are very good at orbit calculations. Like, you you could look at some charts and do a lot of math and figure out where you need to shoot in the, you know, in the night sky to hit the moon 80 days later. But they changed that in Portal 2, not specifically for the moon thing. They they did it to close a exploit between using the time gap of a portal traveling to do some crazy stuff. But... Good. I'm going to say we're using the Portal 2 gun because you can actually hit the moon with that. And the second part of that equation is basically, is the moon a target that you're able to hit as a person, like, on the ground? Like, how big is the moon in the night sky and kind of how fast is the moon moving? So if you look up how fast the moon moves, it says it moves about 13 degrees in the skies each night. And this is talking about, like, the monthly patterns of the moon, like how it changes its orbit around the Earth. But the Earth is also rotating, so from your perspective... The moon travels around the Earth. So keeping it simple, it travels about 360 degrees in a day, which means it travels one degree every 240 seconds. So it's really not moving particularly fast. And how big is the target? So the size of the moon in the night sky is equal to 31 arc minutes, or about half a degree. That's kind of how you measure targets, is from your point, how big of an angle do you have from your perspective that you could aim in that would still hit it? And so this half degree is about the equivalent of shooting and hitting anywhere on, like, a typical pistol range target. So it's totally doable to shoot the moon. It's not going to move out of your way from your shot. You can, just as a person, without any fancy planning, just shoot and hit the moon, which is cool. See, easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah. It traveling at light speed helps a lot. Otherwise, this would be very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to my plan to put all the garbage there, the question is, how much garbage do we need to shoot out onto the moon? So, basically, each day, the United States produces 292.4 million tons of garbage. So, of that garbage, 23.6 of it is actually recycled, which is a higher percentage than I kind of expected. I thought recycling was kind of a sham. 8.5% is composted. 12% is... What they is combustion with energy recovery, which means they burned it and, you know, use that for energy. And 6% of it goes into this food management category where food gets taken separately and um, goes through its own processes. That leaves basically exactly 50% of our garbage goes to landfills. So 146 million tons each year goes into landfills. Now... In order to find out how we have how we have to get this through our portal, I gotta get this into from weight to volume. The density of trash once it's compacted is about thirty pounds per foot cubed. Our garbage trucks are actually pretty good at squishing garbage. The compaction ratio is six to one, which means if you have like six trash cans worth of garbage, it compresses it into the size of one trash can, which is pretty good. But only reduces our number so much because we have to go from that one hundred forty-six million tons to cubic feet, and we have 9.73 billion cubic feet of garbage that we have to squeeze in through our portal every year. So, how fast of a garbage train do we need to go through to keep up that rate? The size of a portal is about the size of a doorway, um, 6 foot 8 tall, 3 foot wide oval, gives it an area of 62.8 square feet. So just doing some unit conversion, dividing some things out, the speed the garbage will need to be continuously traveling is 1,791 feet per second, or 1,221 miles an hour. That's pretty freaking fast. Uh, (laughs) A little perspective, the speed of sound is 767 miles an hour, so all our garbage is going to have to be breaking the sound barrier in a continuous train, kind of going through this portal in order to keep up with the garbage that we're producing. So can we get the garbage going this fast? So the short answer is is yes. You, you can do lots of things to make garbage go this fast. But I didn't want to do anything that's like a, you know, like a rocket engine or anything that's like bulky or like, you know, one-time use, you know, uses fuel or anything because it's going to be going out onto the moon and that's it. You know, you're not going to get it back. You'll have to be building all this new stuff and that's just wasteful. 
But there is a cool modern option for making big things go very fast. And that's basically electromagnetic propulsion. So, in 1908, which is way earlier than I expected, Cleveland Mayor Tom L. Johnson filed a patent for a wheelless high-speed railway levitated by an induced magnetic field. He jokingly referred to this as greased lightning <laughs> for his train, <laughs> which is an awesome name. But you may recognize that description as a modern-day maglev train. So these are the high-speed rails. They're more popular, like in uh, China has a few, Japan has a few, and it's exactly that. It's a train that sits on a magnetic field, so it's literally levitating, so there's no friction between the train itself and the tracks. And it's then accelerated by inducing an electromagnetic field that picks it up and accelerates it forward. The current fastest maglev train is um, runs to Shanghai and operates at a top speed of 270 miles an hour, which, if you're paying attention, you may notice isn't anywhere close to what we need. But that's because the limiting factor on these maglev train speeds isn't how good the electromagnetic propulsion is. It's two other things. One is G-forces. If you accelerate too fast, you'll kill everyone in the train. And the second one is air friction. Air friction is a big problem whenever we do these crazy fast physics numbers because it's... The, the amount of air friction exponentially increases with speed. So for every increase in speed, you know, if you double your speed, you're going, you have to have eight times as much power to get over the air friction. So we actually are working on ways to fix this. Elon Musk is working on it, but there's actually a prototype in China already for a maglev train that's in a vacuum tube. And basically the vacuum tube reduces the amount of air to one-tenth of what it would be, and with less air, you're going to have less air friction, and the prototype that they have can theoretically hit 1,800 miles an hour with their maglev train. So existing tech, 1,800 miles an hour on a train. And what's great is we don't have to worry about G-forces because we don't care if our garbage gets, you know, squished. It's already squished. It's garbage. It's better if it gets squished. Exactly. <laughs> It'll get more compressed. <laughs> so we have a vehicle that we can use to shoot all our garbage fast enough onto the moon. And conveniently, like with the uh, with the vacuum tube, is if one of our portal goes out to the vacuum of space on the moon, it's already like self-producing its vacuum. We don't even have to have a fancy like, you know, sealed chamber or anything. We can just have the air go out the vacuum, you know, out onto the moon. So that's handy. So the next thing I looked at is we're, we're shooting this really fast. Like there's, there's such a geyser on the moon shooting garbage out onto it. If you think about it, Shooting the garbage off the moon is better than shooting it on the moon. Is our garbage going fast enough that it has enough speed to escape the moon's gravity? In which case, it's not being piled up on the moon in a nasty trash pile. It's just shooting off into the vacuum of space. We never have to worry about it again. So to kind of put things in perspective, the Earth's escape velocity is 25,000 miles an hour. And in order to achieve orbit, space shuttles actually accelerate up to 18,000 miles an hour. That's crazy fast. Like, I thought before I did this that they kind of just went, you know, a few hundred miles an hour, like, you know, like fast jet plane speeds and then kind of call it a day. But no, they just, they go up to 18,000 miles an hour. Um, we're nowhere close to that. But of course, the moon is not the Earth. So the moon's escape velocity is going to be quite a bit less because that's quite a bit less gravity. The moon's escape velocity is 5,283 miles an hour. We are at, you know, we need 1,221. We can get up to 1,800 miles an hour with our maglev train idea. So is it possible to go faster? And the answer is yes, because again, like I said, the limiting factor on all this electromagnetic stuff is, you know, uh, G-force, air friction, stuff like that. The, the process itself of inducing of, of this acceleration is not super limited, and there's one last application of them where we don't care about going too fast, and that is a rail gun. So these are big guns mounted on ships that will accelerate a projectile with this electromagnetic propulsion to crazy speeds to the point where they don't actually put explosives in railgun ammunition anymore. It's just the kinetic energy of it being shot out so fast is enough. Um, and conveniently, the a railgun projectile shoots at 5,400 miles an hour. So that's kind of proof of concept right there. We can, if we ignore the train bits and convert them, you know, make it look more like, you know, the railgun bits and that setup, we can now be shooting our garbage at 5,400 miles an hour and shooting the garbage 
not only onto the moon, but out into space where it's gone forever. Which sounds great, but some of you might be wondering, hey, do we maybe want some of that stuff at some point? Because at this rate, we'd be chucking 146 million tons of trash into the vacuum of space every year. Is it sustainable? And will we run out of, you know, quote unquote, stuff to like make stuff out of? And according to National Geographic, we actually just hit a interesting milestone as, you know, a species. The amount of human-made stuff, as they put it, with the biggest contributor being concrete, has just exceeded the approximate biomass of the planet at 1.1 trillion tons. So we have now made more stuff than there are living things on the planet. Uh, and yeah, and this, is, and, this, and this is increasing by 30 billion tons a year, um, which means that this is expected to double by 2040. So now by 2040, there'll be double the biomass of, there'll be double the man-made stuff than there is biomass, which sounds perfectly healthy. But compared to that annual generation, 146 million tons is just half a percent more, is, sorry, it's just half a percent of what we're producing each year. So yeah, this is probably fine. This is, this is a fine, good idea. <laughs> Question. Yeah. If we are shooting the portal on the side of the moon that is facing towards us, and then we're shooting... That would be a poor idea. You want to, <laughs> you're going to shoot it to the side of the moon where it's going to shoot well out and past. Okay. Okay. That that was my question as well. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. You're not hitting the moon dead center. That is a poor idea. <laughs> there are plenty of spots on the moon you can shoot it where it does not <laughs> shoot right back at us at 5,400 miles an hour. <laughs> Any other questions? Any other problems? That was the big one. Yeah, really. big okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Chris, what did you do? What was your game item? So the game item I chose was Flood from Super Mario Sunshine, which is a game that released on the GameCube in 2002. It's a Mario game where he has a water jetpack thing slash thing that can just spray water in general. And Flood is actually an acronym for Flash Liquidizer Ultra Dowsing Device. I'm not going to say that every time. I'm just going to say flood. If you could. <laughs> yeah, we don't use acronyms on this podcast, actually. They're, that's our only rule. Yep, only rule. <laughs> no acronyms. So, Mike, I mean, just in the general mechanics of the item itself in the game, it acts as a jetpack where you can, like, hover over gaps and stuff. He can, like, spray walls to clean them. There are a couple other attachments. I think there's, like, a rocket attachment that, like, launches him super high up into the sky. There's one that has like a propeller on the back, which makes him run super fast. Um, I think those are the only ones, right? Am I missing any others? Um, I think that's it. Yeah, there's there's three boxes, the base one, the rocket one, and the speed one. Yeah, yeah just three. So yeah, so those are mainly the functions of it. But the main question I had was how much water can it actually hold in the tank? Because if you look at the dimensions, it looks pretty small, but it sprays a lot of water. So how much water can it hold? Um, and if you if you look at Mario's body, it's it looks like it's about a fourth the size of his a fourth of his height, I guess. Uh, so I had to figure out like how tall Mario was, and I actually found this in a previous episode that we did that was Nintendo related, where we fought a bunch of Nintendo characters, and mine was Mario. And in that episode, I found out that there's an official life size Mario statue that they base his height off of, I guess, his official height. So that statue is five foot one inches. So that that's how tall I'm gonna say he is. He's five foot one. And that means that the water tank is one foot three inches in diameter. Now, with that diameter I'm assuming it's like a spherical thing, because that's kind of what it looks like in the pictures. If it's a sphere, that means that the volume of the tank is eight and a half cubic feet. Which is pretty small. Yeah, that's not a lot of water. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this can't be right because it sprays a lot of water in the game. So I got to figure out, like, how much water is it actually? To do this, I looked at the question from, like, slightly a slightly different perspective. Uh, so I looked specifically at the jetpack function, because it has a jetpack mode. And I wanted to see, like, how much water does it take to lift a person like that? Uh, because Mario is, like, I assume he's the average weight of a human being, so it'd be around the same as if you had to lift someone in real life with a jetpack. And fortunately, there are real-life water jetpacks I can look at. So there are a couple water jetpacks in real life. There's the Jetlev and the Flyboard. So the Flyboard, I think, is more of like a, a thing that you stand on, and it, 
it lifts you up, but it's the same basic idea. It lifts the, the weight of a person. And their websites didn't actually say that much detail about like water consumption or anything. But on Jetpack America's website, they say that their jets expel up to a thousand gallons per minute of water, which is a lot of water. <laughs> more, more than 8.3 cubic feet, you might say? Yes, quite a, a bit more. So that's, that, that's the number I used. Next, I had to figure out how much, like how long the jetpack in the game shoots out until he runs out of water. And for this, I didn't, I don't actually have the game anymore and I don't have a GameCube anymore, so I couldn't do this myself. But I did find a YouTube video. Um, YouTuber SwankyBox did this because he was actually trying to answer the exact same question that I'm at, uh, answering. And in that video, he he timed the, the jetpack and he found out that it sprays for 42 seconds before the tank is empty. So using 42 seconds at 1,000 gallons per minute, that means that the water tank has 700 gallons of water in the tank, which is 93.6 cubic feet, which is the size of 17 bathtubs, which is a lot more than eight and a half cubic feet. Yeah, just a smidge. <laughs> <laughs> and this is at like normal atmospheric pressure, and it's using ocean water, which is a little denser than fresh water. So taking all that into consideration, that means that it weighs 5,980 pounds, which is the weight of a blue whale's tongue, which is, I've used that comparison before. <laughs> God, uh, that's a big tongue. It's a big tongue. <laughs> yeah. I like, you don't say it's a lot of water. You say it's a big tongue. Yeah, no, that's a big tongue. Cause now I'm just, now I just have an image of, of Mario running around, you know, Delphina Plaza with a big tongue strapped to his back. Yeah. If you can't picture a blue whale's tongue, because not many of us have seen a blue whale's tongue, it's about the same as four cows. And if you've never seen a cow, it's about the equivalent of six horses. <laughs> that may or may not be true. I did not confirm that. Probably not true. <laughs> There's a, a bit of a caveat to all these numbers. I kind of just assumed that the jetpack doesn't have to carry its self-weight, like the weight of all that water. Mainly because it was an afterthought and I didn't think about it until this morning. <laughs> yeah, you might run into the into the it can't it's too heavy for its own fuel problem that rockets have, where it doesn't matter how much water you put in it, it won't be able to do the thing because the more water you have, the heavier it is and the harder it is to push up and then you end up in a, a, a loop. A hard math loop. Yeah, because like the, the normal water jetpacks, they don't actually carry the water, they just take it from the ocean or the river or whatever they're in. Um, so they don't actually have to lift that weight. But in our case, we would. I'm going to assume that we don't have to. Now, obviously, our tank isn't the size of 17 bathtubs. So we have to somehow compress all that water into the tiny tank. Now, if you've ever taken a class or like learned anything about water or like fluid mechanics or anything, they always tell you that water is incompressible. And that means that like if you're looking at something like air, you can compress it into a tank and make it smaller, fit it into a tank. But incompressible means you can't do that. So that's kind of why water, it works with like hydraulics and stuff. It's so effective. The thing is, it's not entirely true. So water is actually compressible. It just has a very low compressibility. An example of this is in the ocean. So water at the bottom of the ocean is denser than water at top of the ocean. And it's still only a little denser though. So four kilometers below the ocean surface, where it has up to 40 megapascals of pressure, it's still only reduced in volume by 1.8%. So with all that pressure, it's still relatively the same. It's still technically denser though. But this means that we can compress our water into our tank if we want to. We need to reduce our volume by 91%, which is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the next question I, I had to answer was how compressible is water? So compressibility of water, it's dependent on a few things. Temperature and pressure are the main things. But at zero degrees Celsius and no pressure, water has a compressibility. Uh, this number is not going to mean anything to you, but it has a compressibility of 5.1 times 10 to the negative 10 inverse pascals, which apparently is a super low number for compressibility. Now, I found a paper that measured the compressibility of water at different temperatures and pressures, and it had like this whole chart with numbers and stuff. Mario is actually getting his water from Tropical Beach, so I kind of assumed that his water would be on the warmer side. 
I assumed 20 degrees Celsius, which is uh, 68 degrees Fahrenheit. On their chart thing, at their highest pressure, they, the highest pressure they measured was 100 megapascals, which is more than double that depth that I told you in the ocean. But at that pressure, at 20 degrees Celsius, the volume of the water is reduced by 4.2%, uh, which is nowhere close to what we actually need. But the thing is, from this data set, I was able to kind of interpolate a relationship between compressibility, or I guess the pressure and the redu reduction of volume. It's not necessarily linear, but I'm going to assume that it's linear just because for simplicity's sake, these numbers are, it's going to result in a bigger number in, re in real life. But so this is more of a conservative number. But if I assume it's linear, that means that the pressure required to reduce my volume by 91% is 2.29 gigapascals, which is a lot. Now, there's also an equation that uses compressibility, like in relation to pressure and volume that I could have used instead. But this, this equation kind of assumed that compressibility stays the same uh, as water, as pressure increases, which it doesn't, it changes as pressure increases. But just using that equation to like sort of verify my answer a little bit. If I use that equation, that means I get two gigapascals, which is close to my 2.29 gigapascals. I'm going to say that I'm close and I'm, I'm just going to round up to 2.3 gigapascals is what we need to compress our water. I'm going to add, I'm going to add one extra fun fact here. Okay. Because uh, I because I love looking at the water phase diagram because it has all the cool types of ice. Uh, on it. Um, that's part of my answer. Oh, <laughs> then I'm gonna stop. <laughs> so two point three gigapascals is actually twenty two thousand six hundred times the atmospheric pressure of Earth at sea level. Just to give you something to compare to. Now, at these pressures, it turns out that the water actually turns into ice, and there are sixteen different types of ice, as Marcus has covered in the past i forget what question it was but some probably something to do with the ocean i think it was a, if earth was a an ice if earth was a, a, a water entirely of water yeah yeah that sounds right but if you look at the phase diagram of these different ice types water at 20 degrees celsius under 2.3 gigapascals is right around the ice 6 ice 7 region so it's like pretty much right on the border I'm going to, I think it edges a little closer to A7, so I'm going to say it's I7. And scientists hypothesize that I7 actually naturally occurs on the ocean floor of Europa, which is one of Jupiter's moons. And another naturally occurring instance of I7 is that we found it trapped inside natural diamond. And the International Mineralogical Association actually classifies I7 as a mineral. So what we have in our water tank is a one foot diameter, 6,000 6, pound mineral. It is still technically water, but the thing is it's solid. So obviously you can't spray it out as a jetpack if it's solid. And that's ideally what we want to do. So I, I, I was trying to figure out how can we turn it into a liquid? And the answer is you increase the temperature of the liquid. So... If we heat our liquid up to 200 degrees Fahrenheit, um, it'll turn back into a liquid and we'll be able to shoot it out. The thing is, when it shoots out, it's going to be highly pressurized because of all the pressure that's under. So we actually use water jets to cut material in real life. They're called water jet cutters. And these water jet cutters are used, we, we can use them to like cut metal and stuff. That's how strong they are. And... These cutters range from 280 megapascals to up to 690 pas uh, megapascals. And they usually mix an abrasive material into the water to make it a little stronger. There are some that are only water, and we use these for like softer materials to cut like wood and rubber. But our jetpack is under three times, more than three times the pressure of these higher end cutters. So it's going to be very strong. We can probably cut a lot of materials with it when it's coming out of its jetpackiness, or it doesn't even need to shoot as a jetpack. But and it's going to be super hot because it's going to be 200 degrees Fahrenheit and boiling because it's going to be back at atmospheric pressure. So we essentially have a 6,000 pound boiling water laser. <laughs> 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 and one final thing here, because um, I knew that 
I guess spoilers again for Portal. <laughs> <laughs> Skip this last part of my answer if you don't want the end of Portal spoiled. But I knew that Marcus was doing that moon thing with the trash. And I knew that I had this water thing that's like in the game. He's He uses it to clean things. I was like, can I use this to clean the moon? I didn't necessarily know that he was going to shoot wa- shoot trash away from the moon. I kind of assumed that there'd be a bunch of trash on the moon. But <laughs> still, can we get can we use this jetpack to clean the moon? So as Marcus mentioned, the escape velocity on Earth's surface is 20,000 miles per hour. Unfortunately, our jet stream only shoots a measly 4,800 miles per hour. So we're nowhere close to the escape velocity to get off of Earth. It is six times the speed of sound and two and a half times faster than a bullet. So even though we can't clean the moon, we do have an effective weapon to fight Bowser, which I think is good. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So that was basically my answer. Ben, what did you do? So I I went to a a slightly more obscure, I guess, um, game slash item. I went with the Dagger of Time from the uh, Prince of Persia games. Uh, specifically, there have been a few games that, that include it. I'm specifically using the version from the, the first time it showed up, which was Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, which is from, I want to say, like 2003 or so. I don't know, something like that. And it's it's a game. It's set in 9th century Persia. There is this this prince of Persia who f- gets this dagger. They're in this kingdom. There's this this dagger he takes, and there's this hourglass full of magical sands called the Sands of Time that through various events, get released and turn everyone in the kingdom into these terrible sand monsters. Aside from him, the game's love interest and the game's villain, who all had different artifacts that protected them. I mean, the game was trying to, you know, get the sand at the time back into the hourglass container un- and undo everything that happened. So what does this, this dagger actually let you do? So it has four powers. Um, there's the power of revival, which basically just lets you rewind time. It's not unlimited. It only goes back 10 seconds, so pretty limited, but just rewinds up to 10 seconds, easy, done. Uh, there's the power of delay. Uh, this slows down time, including for yourself. I, I tried to time it using YouTube videos, because apparently that's all I do on this podcast now, is time <laughs> things using YouTube videos. And it looks like time slows down to about a third speed. But once again, that includes yourself as well. There's the power of restraint, which basically lets the prince freeze enemies that he hits with a dagger in time probably not that helpful because i'm assuming we're not going to be stabbing people with this dagger that feels like not exactly the intended use here uh but technically it's there i mean stabbing is probably an intended use of well, okay yeah it's an intended use of the dagger it's not our... <laughs> maybe maybe not our intended use right yeah you can use okay. it as a butter knife you can also use it to, like open packages really useful for that no um <laughs> No, and then there's finally there's the power of haste, which is basically the same as the power of delay. It, it slows down time, but it doesn't affect the prince. He stays at normal speed. Uh, there are obviously there's limitations on this. Uh, it can't just be used infinitely. Uh, the prince has power tanks and sand tanks. You can get up to ten of each. You can fill them up by killing sand mus- monsters, but hopefully that's not relevant here. There are no <laughs> sand monsters. It's just the dagger. There's also loose like clouds of sand around that you can fill. They'll, they'll fully fill up both tanks if you go through them. And I'm going to say that that you have an effectively unlimited supply of sand somewhere fixed. But when you're out in the world, you only have access to, to 10 sand tanks and send 10 power tanks to use these abilities. The powers cost different amounts. So the power revival costs one sand tank. Power for delay costs one power tank. Those are easy. The power of haste uses all of your sand and power tanks when you use it. Oh, good. I never used it in the game because it felt like a waste. I probably should have used it more. Made the game easier. I don't know. But that one's kind of your, your you know, last resort. Because if you use that, then suddenly you are you are unprotected. The way they're used, there's like a little jewel in the dagger that, that gets pushed in to use it, I think, is kind of the idea. The power of revival, I think, also triggers automatically when the prince dies. I couldn't find anything directly saying that, but I know that happens in the game. When you die, it rewinds 10 seconds, uh, assuming you have sand available. But we're going to say that at the very least, hit the button, it goes back. If not, maybe if you're about to die, it does it too. We'll say just for, for simplicity's sake, we'll say that that still happens. So on its face, this is a pretty, a pretty I'm not going to say simple, but uh, 
straightforward time travel power. But most of the things you normally do with time travel, you need more time than 10 seconds to do it, right? There, there's definitely uh, a lot... It's a lot smaller window than to do a lot of useful things. You can't, you know, the easy money-making type ideas are things like going and betting on sports or something, but you can't place a bet on something within 10 seconds knowing that it's going to happen. You can open someone's package and then re- rewind time so that they don't know that you opened it. That is that is true. <laughs> that is a thing you could do. I hadn't <laughs> considered that one for some reason. The obvious choice. The obvious choice in retrospect. That's it. That's my answer. You're right. It's better than anything <laughs> I had. So what I was started looking for were things that you could do where having that sort of protection of the power of revival and ideally having the slowing down ability as well would be useful, but also would be very quick events that you could um, have that, that 10 seconds. It would be plenty of time to undo whatever terrible things happen to you during it. And the answer I wound up with was actually drag racing. Uh, so drag racing is just driving very powerful cars, short distances, very, very fast. The prizes vary. Um, sometimes they're very large. There was a race in July of 2020 where the grand prize was $1.1 million. That was kind of a one-off thing. I looked into, there's a a drag racing series, the NHRA Full Throttle Drag Racing Series. And it looked like race winners got around $50,000 a race. And there was a, a large prize for the champion that I couldn't find for recent seasons. The only one I could find was actually 2008, but then it was $500,000. And those obviously shift down for, you know, runners up and things like that. But even if you're coming in 10th, I think top 10 was getting at least $10,000 each race. And then I think top 10 in the series was getting like $25,000 at the end of the year or something as a bonus. So like I said, they race on thousand foot tracks. I guess specifically I'm looking at the, the fastest category of drag racing, which is the top fuel category. The cars run on nitromethane fuel. And that is a very, very pretty volatile fuel uh an engine burning nitromethane produces around 2.4 times the power of a gasoline engine seems safe oh yeah totally safe they go from zero to 100 in about 0.8 seconds they reach around 330 miles per hour during the race and that race finishes in under four seconds i've seen average times around 3.7 3.8 seconds for a race Uh, so well within our 10 seconds absolutely terrifying clearly is it weird that your drag race is the slowest thing on this podcast episodes by a factor of like 20 it's really funny actually (laughs) so they race on thousand foot tracks it used to be traditionally a drag race was a quarter mile which is like 1320 feet Um, but they changed it down to a thousand foot track because of a fatal crash in 2008 Uh, it was supposed to be temporary and then it wasn't it just kind of is the the distance now so the way sort of a drag race works, there's like a starting light and, you know, when the light goes green, you go very fast for under four seconds and then you try to stop. They actually, they keep a, a power ranking based on on various factors of their drivers, but it has their average times and average reaction times. The difference between the average like finishing times of the first and 14th racers is about 0.101 seconds. So it's a very small margin here, obviously. And with the reaction times, the fastest they have on there is about 0.0458 seconds. Uh, The average of the people on the the leaderboard is 0.0723. For comparison, average reaction times for normal people are like 0.15 to 0.3 seconds. So these drag racers have reaction times that are four times faster than than just you or or I would have. I actually tested mine for this. Um, I think I've done multiple times for this podcast for some reason. I got 0.217 seconds. And uh, interestingly, if you say you're using the power of delay to, you know, improve your reaction time on the the start, if you reduce that by a third, you get 0.723 seconds uh, or 0.0723 seconds, which is the average time of these racers. So just using the power of delay, you can get down to a drag racing reaction time uh, and i'm assuming if you train you could get yours even faster and theoretically the reaction time isn't all of it obviously but uh it is certainly with these margins a pretty big portion of it and you should be a very successful drag racer i guess a pretty nice little you know career path using your your fancy dagger which i figure you like build into the shifter on your car or something so you can always have it at your hand i don't know be cool whatever be that guy so that was my plan that was what i was gonna do and then last night marcus and i were talking and he asked, 
if I had looked into how long passes between when someone gives their final answer on who wants to be a millionaire and when it's revealed <laughs> if they were right or not. <laughs> and I hadn't, but I suddenly had to. Because obviously, if, if you have enough time, that's great. You know, you have 10 uses of this thing. There's only 15 questions. You should know most of them. Not most of them, but you should know a decent amount of them first guess if you, you know, prepare a reasonable amount. And you should have pretty good odds of being able to win a million dollars if you can, you know, have a do-over 10 times, basically. And three lifelines. And three lifelines. <laughs> Just so many lifelines. You have 13 lifelines. So I found a compilation on YouTube that it was, as of 2018, all of the million pound questions from the British version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. There were only 15 of them. Nine of those people didn't wind up giving an answer. They just took the 500K and, and left. Um, so there were six that actually gave an answer. Uh, one of them went to a commercial break, which is hilarious. And I cannot imagine <laughs> if you gave your final answer for a million dollars and they sent you to a commercial break. That's ridiculous. Of the other five, the, the times were six, eight, 11, 12, and 13 seconds. Oh, no. So assuming that this is a, a fair distribution, which it, it may not be, right? That's only only six data points is pretty small. You basically have a one in three chance of getting a fast enough reply to rewind to before you confirmed your answer. But even that's not quite that simple because if you have to do it twice, there's no guarantee you'll get the same amount of time the next time. So it's it's not necessarily as cut and dry as, you know, just a one in three chance of, of getting it right if you don't know the answer. So... It's definitely risky. I was wondering if this is just because it's the million dollar question. I guess in this case, the million pound question, because this is British millionaire. So I found also a compilation of all the people who won no money on British Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which are hilarious because they just, you know, botched like the second question that's, you know, like some, there was one that I saw that was hilariously, it was like, the, the answer was climate. And the question was something about like, what is the the prevailing conditions in a region called? And the guy used a 50-50 and got climate or front and then chose front instead of climate. And I was like, man, what are we doing here? <laughs> Generally, those are faster. Only one in the seven I saw took over 10 seconds. Uh, one of those that was under 10 was at about nine seconds, and that would be a pretty tough turnaround. You'd have to be, you know, really on that. Generally, it was five to eight seconds, so you'd be okay. But that does mean that there's not that much of a drop between the early questions and the late questions, right? You're not going to be able to just roll through to six-figure money and then only there have have risk. So, I mean, it wouldn't hurt. You could totally go on Millionaire and somehow sneak a dagger in with you, which is kind of maybe a tough, <laughs> tough part of this whole plan. But if you can pull that part off. I also, I also love that from a audience perspective of you using this power it would be like all right it's a is that your final answer no 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 no, no, it's no, no. b <laughs> is that your final answer no no no, no. it's c <laughs> I, I think i get to play it off i think you'd have to like give an answer and then if you got it wrong rewind and when they say final answer go actually hold on if you, you couldn't just go immediately <laughs> to the next answer because it would look super weird you're right <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i guess the other thing you could do you could commit to always being one of the people who goes a final answer so it just gets all rolled up in the same thing and hopefully you could get back far enough to, to get around it but yeah no it's certainly worth doing because you're still just going on who wants to be a millionaire you can still win some money regardless but it's not necessarily foolproof i mean those beginning questions are usually pretty easy apparently people fail them anyway but yeah it's really embarrassing you don't, sometimes you probably don't need to use your dagger in the beginning I'd hope not. I mean, the, I think the problem you're going you're to run into is that, you know, I'm going to guess that in the once the questions actually start getting hard, you probably have at best a 50% chance of being able to rewind if you get it wrong. So obviously, you know, once again, it helps your eyes. Don't get me wrong, but it's not going to be a, you know, you can't, you can't just be super risk takey and always be okay, but certainly worth doing. So anyway. Ooh, 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 ooh. Actually, Ben, the way you do it is... You don't wait for them to tell you if you're right or wrong. You use your phone a friend 10 rounds and get your person to pick up and answer you within 10 seconds. And then you say, you've unused that lifeline. No, because there's always there's always a dial tone when they do the phone a friend. Oh, yeah. No, they, 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 they wind it up. They're yeah, like, let's it's gonna call be them. More, it's going to be more Ooh. than 10 seconds. It's not going to work. 
Dang. We could do right. the 50-50 more than once. No, because that involves the audience voting. So there's a time on that one, too. Really? No, I don't think the audience votes on that. There's an audience voting one, and then there's a 50-50 Oh, 50-50. Sorry, 50-50. It's the, uh, yeah, that's right. There's Ask the Audience is what I'm thinking of. Wow, that was a dumb mix-up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you might be able to use 50-50 multiple times. That one's the, the one you'd be closest. But you'd have to basically, you'd have to say you're using your 50-50, and then hope they do it within 10 seconds, and you can see which answers get removed. I think it'd be tight, but you probably could do it. So, anyway... There you have it. That's how to cheat. <laughs> That's our, our strategy guide for who wants to be a billionaire, given that you have the, the, dagger, the dagger of time. time. Yeah, it makes things easier, it turns out. I like that we started with the most extreme and then went down to who wants to be a millionaire. Sure <laughs> usually did. we escalate. Sure yeah, did. Yeah, usually we end in space and start with millionaire. <laughs> start with game shows, end in space. We won't reverse this episode. Just try to mix things up a little bit these, you know, these days. All right. With that, let's move on to our would you rather question. Chris. Yes. Would you rather make a tiny home out of a school bus or a shipping container? Is it bad that I've actually watched YouTube video time lapses of both of these things happening? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, that puts you in the majority. I think I've done it. All right. Fair enough. I have not. I know I've watched a school bus. I'm pretty sure I've watched a shipping container too. So a shipping container is bigger. School bus has Doors. furniture already <laughs> built into it and has wheels. <laughs> but I think there's more custom it. More customization available for the shipping container. I don't necessarily think that my home being on wheels is necessary. For me, it's kind of like if I'm going to be living that tiny home life, having it mobile, I think, is huge. Because what you're going to want to do is spend a lot of time outside because your house is tiny. And shipping containers are a good size. They're pretty big. I mean, honestly, looking at my studio apartment, I think a shipping container is bigger than my studio apartment. Oh, yeah. Shipping containers like 20 by 40. Yeah, so it's not that, that small. Shipping container size. You might be right. Or ten by forty. Oh no, they're eight by eight by twenty or eight by forty. Oh, eight by tw- oh, they're eight foot by twenty. That makes more sense. Eight by twenty or eight by forty. Um, still bigger than Chris's apartment, I'm sure. Yeah, still <laughs> bigger than my apartment. Ooh, school buses are also twenty to forty feet in length. School buses you have windows built in, which is nice. I mean, you can put it. You can you can get you know windows in your shipping container you can cut out that metal no problem yeah so but but hmm. so i guess i'm gonna i'm gonna be marcus for a second here if you put windows in a shipping container you should have a weird house if you make a house out of a bus it's still identifiably a bus and that's kind of cool yeah like i said for me mobility is big because what you can do is you can go where the weather's not if you have a shipping container in like the south where it's warm all year it's hot in the summer if you have a shipping container up north where it's nice in the summer and cold in the winter it's cold in the winter you have half you know you have a lot of the year that you can't really go out too much there of course you can settle in places where it's nice all year round but it's trick you have you're more limited a bus you can just like um what do they call the people that migrate from florida to to the northeast uh snow snowbird snowbirds yes snowbirds um, you could do that. You could be a snowbird with your bus. Other other point on on that, Marcus. So it's actually not that expensive to move a shipping container like locally. Apparently, it costs like one and a half to three dollars per mile moving it. You know, within the U.S. So hmm. it's not that much. And if you keep it as a working bus, you're gonna have to pay like excise tax on that, and you know, there's gonna be costs involved with moving it around. I don't know if there's actually a if you're not going to move it constantly, if you're going to move it like all the time, the bus probably makes more sense. If you're going to move it, you know, once every few months, maybe it's about the same. That's actually interesting. Now, now I'm actually leaning back. Now I'm leaning towards shipping container just because, yeah, you don't want to move it all the fucking time. But if you do move it. You don't have to deal with maintenance on your house. I don't have to get my, I was going to say, I don't have to get my house inspected, but you probably have to do that anyway, huh? Don't you? <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to get, I mean, houses require maintenance just like mm-hmm. buses do. Yeah. I mean, if I had the ability to move my house, I'd probably only move, like, once or twice a year. Right. Yeah, 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 of course. And at that point, it's just easier. It's like it's just easier to have the, the shipping container at that point. Because it, it is definitely more customizable. And it's like, you can really make it your own. There is a cool factor to school buses. And probably, it's not even cheaper. Like, I don't think it would even be cheaper to have a bus rather than a a shipping container the school bus is the the story answer though the cool story answer that is true 
It also kind of has a creepy aspect to it. It's a little, <laughs> it's a little weird. Living in a shipping container? Yeah, no. just a smidge. Oh, I was going to say the school bus. Is it creepy to have a customized school bus? It's creepy to be in a non-customized school bus. I don't think it's creepy to have a, like, retrofitted school bus. Does that make sense? Maybe. So one one thing to keep in mind is that although a, a shipping container is, you know, around eight or nine feet tall, the interior height of a school bus is roughly six feet tall at the center where it's not, you know, sloping down. So that is, you know, I'm about six feet tall. <laughs> I'm trying to find some positives for the school bus because it seems like we're leaning heavily into the shipping container right now. Like... I, I think I think the pauses for the school bus is that there's a lot more charm to a school bus than a shipping container. That's the big one. Yeah, it's the thing is once you convert it, the interiors are going to be fairly similar. Mm-hmm. Like once you go through the effort of making it a livable tiny house, like it's going to be on the inside and feature wise pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. The bus might be a better starting point because already is you know wired and has an engine that you can use for power, but. I'm not even sure if like running the bus engine is the most efficient is more efficient than like a generator that you would buy anyway. I'm gonna guess you're probably gonna want a separate generator. Yeah. All right. I think I'm ready to vote. Not about you guys. I think we're all on the same page. Yeah. Um. I'm gonna vote for the shipping container. Me too. Yeah. Me three. Hey, we agreed. Realize you can move the shipping container was just a breakthrough, Ben. I I just like well, that's it. Yeah. No. I mean, <laughs> it's it really is like. Like, if you can still move it pretty easily and not have to deal with, you know, maintain a bus, like, do that. There you go. There you go. Buy a shipping container, everybody, and go live in it. It's the best. But you know what else is also the best? Supporting your favorite podcasts. If you want to help support our show, there's a few things you can do. One, you can leave us a good review. That's super helpful. That's super awesome. That's super free. Also, super awesome, super free thing you can do? Send us your questions. We love getting listener questions. So if you want to have, if you have a cool idea for hypothetical that you want us to cover and go into way too much detail on, shoot us an email at um, absurdhypotheticals at gmail.com. I think that works. Thank you. Been a while since I plugged that. Forgot our email address. <laughs> <laughs> we, have a, we have a couple that would work, but you can use that one. Absurdhypotheticals at gmail. Very easy to remember. Also, easy to remember, www.patreon.com slash absurdhypotheticals and sign up for our Patreon direct support with your dollar bills or singular dollar bill each month because it's just $1 to get access to all our behind-the-scenes content that we've been producing, awesome things where we talk about making the show, have a little, you know, side chats, Ben drank spicy milk one time, lots of fun things going on I like back there. We always bring that up when we're mentioning the behind the scenes <laughs> literally every time it's the one that just stuck to my brain that, that those neurons are you know just infinitely connected so <laughs> there you go but yeah any of those things super helpful we would super appreciate any of that support but in any case another way you can support the show is just to keep listening and you can do that next week when we answer the following question what if all mail delivery stopped <laughs>